Today we're finishing our series uh, called Money Matters, and I was reminded this week of, of a story of a, a young boy who was on his way to kids' church, and um, his mom said, hey, here's two quarters. Uh, one of these is for you, and one of them you need to give to God and put an offering. He said, okay. And as little boys do on his way over to kids' church, he was flipping them up in the air, you know, just kind of playing with them. And he had to go outside to go to the other building where he was supposed to go. And he flipped one up, and it went down into the drain and went in the storm drain in the bottom. And he pressed his face up against the grate and his little hand through it to try to see if he could grab it, and he couldn't grab it. And he went, well, he stood back up and started flipping his other coin. He goes, well, that was yours, God. <laughs> this is my quarter. <laughs> and I tell that story because I think in some way, most of us, if not all of us, feel that way at some time. We feel like we really have to do everything we can do to take care of ourselves because no one else really cares about us. No one else is really going to invest or protect or provide or like it's all up to us. And so I think that's a feeling that we, that we commonly have. But here's what I want to assure you in this series. If this is your very first Sunday at Kingwood or online with us, or maybe you haven't been in a while and, and here you are, I want to assure you we've made one statement for four weeks, and it's tr as true today as it has been the, the rest of the entire series. God wants something for you, not something from you. And that's true in the area of giving, just as it was when we talked about getting out of debt, just as it was when we talked about savings, and just when it, as it was when we talked about why money matters to God. So um, here's what I want to share with you. This is a difficult truth to understand because it's counterintuitive to common wisdom. And the hardest things to learn are always the ones that are counterintuitive, like they don't seem obvious. And this is one of those. To explain that, what I want to do is explain the difference this morning between an oxymoron. I'm not making fun of anybody. <laughs> That's an actual word. An oxymoron and a paradox. Here's what an oxymoron is. An oxymoron is a figure of speech using opposite words. Now, it's not literally true, but you put two words in the same sentence that are opposites, and it's figurative. It's a figure of speech. Let me give you some examples that we use all the time. Same difference. What? See, that's not literally true, because I don't even know what that would mean. Here's one, random order. Hey, hey, go, go put those just in random order. Wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> if, I, if I put them in order, it can't be random, right? Here's one we'll all appreciate. Government organization. <laughs> See, you get it now, right? You get it, yeah? Like, I'm not sure those, you know. All right, um, headbutt. I'll, I'll let you... Talk amongst yourselves on that one. Virtual reality. Is it, is it, if it's virtual, is it real? You get it. Here's one we love in the South, boneless ribs. Isn't a rib a bone? Isn't that what it is? Yes. Original copy. Hey, hey, will you go make me an original copy of that? If I make you a copy, is it still original? You know, I don't, all right. Act naturally. <laughs> I love that one. What do you mean if I'm acting, it can't be natural, can it? Okay, so that's what an oxymoron is. Now, let's talk for a minute about a paradox. A paradox is where you use an opposing statement that is often true. And paradoxes are oftentimes used to explain a truth that's not obvious. It's a, 
It's a deep truth. It's not a figure of speech. It is true. So let me give you a few of them that we use in our culture. Less is more. I mean, sometimes less is more. You know, it's better. Less is better. Less is more. The beginning of the end. Sounds very ominous, doesn't it? It's the beginning of the end. Uh Uh-oh. Dum-dum-dum. The only constant is change. Yes. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Well, you know, there's several of these paradoxes in the Bible. Let me give you a few that Jesus said himself. Mark 9, 35. Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last. That's a paradox. What do you mean that the path to being first in the kingdom of God is becoming last? See, that's a paradox. It's revealing a truth that's counterintuitive and it's not obvious. Another one, Matthew 16, 25, that Jesus said, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Counterintuitive. That doesn't, that's not an obvious truth. We have to really dig to get to that one. Here's one more, Acts 20, 35. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's not an obvious truth. Wait a minute. How can I take some of what I have, give it away, have less, and be better off? That doesn't, that doesn't make common sense, but it is true because that's what Jesus himself said. He said it was true. So giving is a paradox. It is a deep truth. It is counterintuitive. It's not obvious. So this morning, what I want to do is just give you five Um, reasons that giving matters to God. Now, we're not asking you to give again today. We've already given you the offering announcement. We're not asking for money. We're not asking you to give toward anything. We're just teaching, okay? And there's no judgment offered on anyone today on when you give, how much you give, how little you give. There's no judgment. We're just simply teaching, okay? So let me give you five reasons that that giving matters to God. Number one, giving allows you to live a truly blessed life. We just read it. It's more blessed. Jesus said you're more blessed if you give or when you give than when you receive. Now, we have to take a minute and define the word blessing because the way that our culture uses the word blessing and the way that the Bible often uses the word blessing are, are different. Uh, in our culture, when someone says, oh, you know, uh, hashtag blessed. You know what that means is I got my dream house or I got a new car or I'm living in luxury somehow. Aren't I blessed? And the way that scripture would often define blessing is more like this. Um, blessings are when God's favor rests on your life. Like Daniel or Abraham or David. That you live in the favor of God or you walk in the purposes of God. That is deeply fulfilling and satisfying. And that is a blessing. The Bible would say it's blessing to walk in the promises of God. That they are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And that is a blessing. The Bible would say that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is a blessing to know love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That if you know that, if those fruits are flowing in your life, you are, the Bible would say, you are blessed. It's God's kingdom is breaking into your life. You are blessed. 
And so when Jesus says it's more ble- you're more blessed when you give than when you receive, he's given like a biblical definition. So a blessed person's life is filled with divine coincidences and heavenly meaning. And honestly, is a life that most billionaires envy because it's a blessed life. Uh, Patrick Morley, you may have never heard of him. He's been an author, uh, written many books. He spent his entire life ministering to men. He's mentored a lot of men and coached a lot of men. And uh, here's what he said in his experience of working with men. This was his takeaway. He said, the greater proportion of income that a man gives away, the happier he is. It's not what he keeps that makes him happy, but it's what he gives. So here's what's going to happen for those of you who have not experienced this yet. One day you're going to retire from your job. And when you retire, hopefully somebody's going to throw a party of some kind and give you a tribute and say, oh yeah, you know, wasn't it great to know you and work with you? And here's what they're going to talk about. They're going to talk about your achievements. They're going to talk about the work that you did, your achievements. They might even talk about the things that you've acquired. You know, you were, you were the one that always got bonuses or you're the one that had the best car or whatever. But here's the thing. When you die and people go to your funeral, nobody's going to talk about any of that. You know what they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about the impact that you had on them. And that's it. So my strong encouragement to all of us today is live for your funeral, not for your retirement. It is more blessed to give (laughs) than it is to receive. Number two, why does giving matter to God? Giving frees your heart from idols, from all other idols. So when you and I come to Jesus, if if you've... receive Christ's forgiveness into your heart, and you're following Him. When we come to Jesus, we don't come as blank slates. We don't come empty. We come full. We come full of all kind of stuff. We come full of disappointments and hurts and pains and wounds and values and belief systems and paradigms and priorities and all this kind of stuff. And what the whole Christian life is about, the whole Christian life is about Jesus emptying us of all those things that he might fill us with him and the life of God in Christ. So, so we're, not, we're not coming with this you know, empty slate. We're coming with all this stuff. And the whole Christian life is about emptying that out so that we might be full. So what Jesus actually does in all of our lives is he does heart surgery. And what he's doing is he's carving away in our hearts those pains and wounds and priorities and everything in our life that is more important than him. He's carving this. Because here's the thing. There's nothing that you can make the center of your life that will set you free but Jesus. Everything else you make the center of your life will create some form of bondage. And so Jesus, out of his own mercy and out of his own love, when you come to him, he starts surgery. He starts carving things away and pulling things away because he's trying to separate from your heart the things that are binding you so that he might bind you to himself so that you might be free. That's how the whole thing works, right? Yes, that's how it works. Okay, so let's see one of the scalpels that Jesus uses is giving. That's one of the 
the things he uses to cut at or to cut with. Let's see an example in the New Testament. There was a tax collector. As most tax collectors were, he was corrupt. (laughs) He had built his life around building wealth, and he was really good at it because the Bible says he was very wealthy. And he was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector, so he was a leader of other tax collectors. I don't know if he had a pyramid scheme going, I don't know what it was. But like he, he, was, he was doing it. But one day he met Jesus. His name's Zacchaeus. And he was so enthralled by what Jesus was saying, he said, hey, come to my house. And that's where people gave Jesus some static, because they're like, you don't want to go to his house, that guy's corrupt. And Jesus said, you don't know who I am. I came to set people free. So he went to Zacchaeus' house, and they talked, and somewhere in that conversation, Zacchaeus met the true Jesus. And, and the idols of his heart were dethroned, and he put Jesus on the... And listen, here's what happens. Listen to what Zacchaeus says in Luke 19.8. But Zacchaeus stood up. He was, he was emphatic and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor, and I will. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay. Well, he had. Trust me, I will pay back four times. I've never paid anybody four hundred percent for anything. I will pay four times what I've cheated. What did you? How did Jesus respond? Listen to Jesus' validation on what had occurred in his life. Jesus said to him, "Today." Salvation has come to this house. What he's saying is, today the idol in your heart has been dethroned. And today is a day of freedom for you, Zacchaeus. And this is an example of the work that God wants to do in all of our lives. He wants to tear, whatever the idol is, it might not be money. We all have idols of some kind. We don't come to Jesus empty. And he wants to take all of those out. He wants us to put him first because that's the only path to freedom. Uh, I had an interesting event that happened to me when I was, uh, I'd been in youth ministry. I'd been out of college in ministry like six months. And I was sitting in church one day and our pastor's son, who uh, they had grown up in Guatemala on the mission field. And so he was the oldest. So they had lived in another culture and, you know, had often done without things. And we were sitting in worship service. And he looked at me and he said, uh, what, sh- what size shoe you wear? And I was new to the church and I thought, shh, you know, <laughs> we're in church. And he said, what? and I thought, why do you care? What? I said, I don't know, nine and a half or ten. He goes, do you like my shoes? And I said, yeah. I mean, I, did, I didn't know, I never, first time I'd ever met him, I said, I guess. He said, well, I'll tell you what I want to do when church is over. I want to give you these shoes. And I said, well, I... I appreciate that, but I couldn't figure out what was going on. You know, I didn't know if he wanted something. I didn't know what the deal was. I'd never met him. And he said, I, I want to give you these shoes. I said, okay, I, okay, I'm great. You know, sure, I don't, I don't know how to feel. <laughs> and he said, see, what happened is, is these are my favorite shoes. And I'm getting just a little too attached to them, and they've become a little too important to me. And I don't want anything to rule my heart but Jesus So I'm going to give you these shoes. So when church was over, I walked home with a new pair of shoes. And I'd never had anybody do that or say that. But he and his family were insistent that they would never allow a material thing to rule their heart. 
And when it became too important, the way that they broke it, they learned from Jesus, take the scalpel of giving out and cut it off. And give it to him. And now you're free. And that's what he did. And I never forgot that. I mean, that was years ago, and I've never forgot that. So in the Old Testament, um, this is what we've learned. We've learned that Israel was instructed to give the first of all their herds and the first fruit of all their crops to God. And that was how they put him first. Leviticus 27.30 says, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It's holy. You know what the Bible means when it says something's holy? It means it's set apart and separated for God's purposes and no other purpose. And so what he's saying is, is the first 10% of your herds and the first 10% of your crops are holy. They don't belong to you. They belong to God. So give them to Him because that's how you practice Keeping God first in your life. Like my friend gave his shoes away and said, I'm going to practice dethroning every other thing that's on the throne of my heart. Now that's still true today. It's still true for every Christian that we are to bring the best and the first part of what we have and give it to God. So the concept of that in Scripture is first fruits. And when you take the first part of what you are, now I don't think we have any you know, animal herders or, or uh, you know, crop farmers in here, maybe. But we don't have those things. But what we do is we work. Americans have the second longest work week in the world. So we all labor. We labor. And so we're to take the first part of our labor, the first and best part of our labor, and bring it. And here's what happens. When you bring the first fruits of what you have, of what you've produced, and you give it to God, here's what you're saying. You're declaring to your soul, you're declaring to your bills, you're declaring to your debt, you're declaring to the culture, you're declaring to your fear. God is first, and I am not. <laughs> and He is going to ensure that I walk in freedom. That's what you're saying to your own soul. So where do you start? I, w- I was thinking about this because um, my family never did this when I was a kid. I didn't grow up in a home. My home was mostly not Christian. And I didn't grow up l- knowing this or learning this or practicing this or anybody showing me this. But as a young teenager, I became a Christian and I was fortunate to be a part of a church that taught it. And I was fortunate for some reason that as a teenager, I received it. And so as a teenager who worked a part-time job and was in high school, I learned to bring the first and best part of everything I made and give it to God. And I've practiced that since I was 16. And I'm so grateful that I have because it's been a blessing to me. But what I tried to do is put myself in someone else's shoes and say, let's pretend that I didn't do that. What would I do? Like, what would I do now? And, and here's, here's what I'm saying to you. I, was thinking, I thought about that a lot this week. I'm going to tell you what I think I would do if I didn't learn that when I was young but was trying to learn it now. Here's what I think I would do. I would, I would try to become as financially healthy as I could. I would make a budget. I would try to make a, a plan to get myself out of as much debt as I could, if not all of it. I would make a plan to save. <laughs> and then I would make sure that I, I brought the first 10% of what I had and I would give it to God. Now, m- maybe if I was starting now rather than as a teenager when I lived at home and made very little, it's harder to do. 
So if I was doing it today, here's what I think I would do. I think I would start where I could start. And if, I, if 10% was too big of a step, I think I'd do five or six or seven or three or one or whatever. I think I would start where I could start. And I would start trying to line my heart up with God's heart for me. And I would say, Lord, this is my step this week, this month of putting you first. And then I would let that percentage grow until it got to 10%, however long that took. If it took, you know, maybe I could get to 3% by the end of the year, or maybe 5% by Easter, or maybe, you know, 6% by next Christmas. I don't know. But I think that's what I would do. And I would watch and give God a chance <laughs> to do everything in His Word He said He would do. And as He did, He would actually help me work out of that hole. Number three, why does giving matter to God? Giving grows your trust in God. Um, so giving takes trust. What giving said is, God, I trust your wisdom more than the world's wisdom. I trust your wisdom more than what our culture says, and I trust that your way is right. Even though it's counterintuitive, even though it doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust that your way is right. And now, by the way, giving is not the only place that we're invited to do that in Scripture. You know that, right? Uh, let's take the Sabbath. Jesus has said, the Sabbath is made for man not man and woman, not man and woman for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift of God given to us that we might rest. So what do we do when we work seven days a week? We reject the Sabbath. And, and we communicate to God, we don't trust your wisdom. We think working seven days a week is smarter than working six. And what God is saying is, no, it's not. You need a day to rest, you need a day to worship, you need a day to renew, you need a day to refresh. And so what Sabbath keeping actually is, is it's a step of trust to say, God, I trust you that the activity of the universe is not all up to me. I'm not working on this by myself, you're working on it and I'm partnering with you by embracing your wisdom. That's the same thing that happens when we bring our first fruits. We're saying, listen, my provision is not all up to me. It's not, the whole thing, it's not like the kid that threw the quarter went, no, i got to keep mine, it's all up to me. It's not all up to us. God's involved. And that's what first fruit giving is, is it's a sign of trust in God. So what happens is, is as you trust Him, your freedom and peace will grow because you can live in the confidence that you have put God first and you are not working on this by yourself. That's what Malachi 3.10 says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open heaven, the, uh, open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there won't be room enough to store it. Okay, here's what's interesting. God explicitly commands us to never test him. You shall not test. You shall not tempt God. The Bible says that in other places. There's no place God gives you the authority or the opportunity or the invitation to test them but one. And he actually invites you to test him in the area of giving. And he says, try me. You don't believe it? Try me. Test me. See what I'm about. And here's what happens. Here's what's so amazing. 
When, when we test God, when we give to God, when we bring the first fruits to God, it gives Him an opportunity to prove Himself to us. And guess what happens when He proves Himself to us? We trust Him more. <laughs> it's His plan to set us free to build our faith and build our trust. That's why He invites us there, because there's a tangible reality that we can see that we go, man, I guess God is I guess God is real. I guess he is involved. Now, look, this whole thing, I, I, I watch the news like you do or the whatever, read the articles and see the stock market and all that, and you may say, man, isn't this a bad time to be talking about money and giving? I have to be honest. I don't have to be honest, but I am going to be honest with you. That question went through my mind several times as I started the series, and I said, God, are you sure? <laughs> and then I just felt a little check to say, if you think about money and giving through the lens of the, through the world's eyes, yes, this is a terrible time. But if you think about it through God's eyes, can there be a better time? When is a better time to test God and realize that he's true? When is a better time to test God and have him show himself trustworthy? When is a better time for you and I's trust to grow in God and not on is the government going to fix it or is the economy going to go up or is the stock market going to go up or is the job going to We can ride that roller coaster till we're sick. But God is a stable force that's the same all the time. And I want to put my anchor there. <laughs> So I don't have to live emotionally sick, or I don't have to worry, or I don't have to live in dread or anxiety or fear, because I can anchor myself in what God says. Here's a good way to say it. You multiply your trust when you trust the multiplier. Number four, giving grows God's trust in you. Did you know this whole thing's a trust thing? When we started this series, we started with a parable that Jesus told. And he basically said this. I'm going to take you back to the key verse of the whole parable. He said in Luke 16, 11, So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, money, who will trust you with true riches? So, so here's the thing. God desires to pour out on your life the depths and riches of the kingdom of God. But if he can't trust you with it, he's not going to do it. How does he know if he can trust you with it? Well, this verse says, if he can't trust you with less valuable earthly money, then he's not going to give you heavenly riches because you haven't proved trustworthy with a little. The Bible says, him who is faithful over a little will be made ruler of much. It's a promotion. <laughs> And, and if your character's not trustworthy here, why would God, God would be a bad steward. So there's no path for you and I to find deep spiritual maturity or deep spiritual fruitfulness un, un, unless we become trustworthy to God. And so, and so that's a thing that he all wants us to grow in because we're bound at lower level living. So let me, let me say it this way. When you withhold... The first fruits, when you withhold your giving to God, you're telling God two things, two very important things about trust. Number one, you're telling Him, I don't trust you because it's all up to me. 
Number two, you're telling him, you can't trust me. Because I'm not doing what you said with the first part. So why would you give me something more valuable than what I'm already not, I'm already not following you? All right, last one. Giving builds an inheritance for you in heaven. Now, I want to explain this one because this probably sounds counterintuitive too. What do you mean giving builds an inheritance for, for you? I mean, it doesn't save you. No, giving can't save you. Like, you can't buy salvation. You can't earn salvation. You can't give your way into salvation. Salvation is you surrendering your heart and life to Jesus. And his death and resurrection on the cross has paid for our salvation, and there's no other way to get it but grace. Okay? I want to make that clear. But giving does build an inheritance. When you give to eternal work, you're increasing your savings account in heaven. Now, I don't know all that that means, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read three verses to you, and I invite you to tell me if you have a different interpretation of it than what I just said. Matthew uh, chapter 6 19 through 21 says this. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and... Ver- you got to watch those vermin. <laughs> you know, the vermin are coming for you. That, that's always a... That's like a goblin or something. Destroy. And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for who? These are Jesus' words. I, di- I didn't make this up. This isn't some loose translation. These are Jesus' words. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Store up for yourselves. Somehow when you give to God's eternal work, it stores up in heaven a benefit for you. I don't, I don't claim to know. I've never been to heaven. I don't claim to know what that means beyond that other than I know that Jesus said it. So, so on that basis, I trust it. Now, here's what I do know. When you store up for yourself treasure in heaven, guess what? The stock market don't go down there. <laughs> Your investment is never going to lose value. There's not going to be some corruption. The lid's going to be blown off and go, uh-oh, yours is gone. Sorry. You got Enron. You know, somebody took your 401. I, 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 that's never going to happen. It's never going to rust. It's never going to, a natural disaster, a hurricane's never going to take it. Nobody can steal it. No government can tax it. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Nobody can tax it, right? It's secure for eternity. Now watch. This whole series, what we've been saying is, is wisdom is long-term thinking. I don't know how much longer you can think than eternity. That's long-term So where are you going to invest? Wisdom says (laughs) in eternity. Where your treasure is, Jesus ended this passage with, your heart will be also. Please hear this today. I don't care if you forget everything I said. It always comes back to the heart. For Jesus, it always comes back to the heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So I'll give you an example. If you buy a stock, I guarantee you, you will watch that stock like you never watched it before. You know why? Because your treasure's there. Do you know the quickest way to make your heart more connected to eternity? 
Start investing in it. And your heart will become more eternally driven. Jesus' words, not mine. One of my favorite um, heroes is a man named Jim Elliott. He was a missionary in the 50s, 1950s. He, um, he was 29 years old, and he had prepared for three years to go and reach a violent tribe in Ecuador. And this tribe had been known to kill every outsider who came into their area um, in, the, in the recent years before that. But he and his small team had prayed, they'd prepared, they'd planned, they made contact with the tribe successfully, and they actually even took a couple of tribe members up in a plane. If you could imagine what experience that must have been for those tribe members who, you know, had probably only seen a few planes in the sky, maybe didn't even know what they were, had taken them up in a plane and flown them around. And he felt like the Lord was opening a door that they might reach that tribe. The short of the story is, uh, a little later, the tribe ambushed them. And, and uh, five missionaries that went to reach that tribe in Ecuador. And Jim Elliott had a gun on his side. And when he realized they were being ambushed, he reached for that gun, and then he stopped and remembered something. Those five missionaries had made a covenant with each other that they would never shoot or kill one of the tribe's members who didn't know Jesus to save their own life. So those... Five missionaries died that day. They were ambushed and slaughtered. And um, two years later, Jim Elliott's wife went back to that tribe and successfully built a relationship with those tribe members. And many of those tribe members came to believe in Jesus. And some of those five missionaries' descendants still live in that tribe today. And that tribe is a peaceful tribe today and not a violent tribe, and many of them know Jesus. Now, here's what I want to tell you, okay? Here's why I love Jim Elliott. He made a statement that I heard when I was in college, and it has just rattled me all of my life. Here's what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Boy, it's so much more powerful coming from him than from me because he lived it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I bet you not one of us would dare to doubt. You wonder if Jim Elliott, Jim Elliott gave his first fruits to God. You wonder if he gave any of his money to God. <laughs> we wouldn't even ask that. He already gave his whole heart. We know the answer to that. We know the answer. And we know what we can learn from Jim Elliott. Look, what he's saying is we can't really keep our money forever. We can't keep our time forever. We can't keep our health forever. We can't keep our job forever. We can't keep our property or house forever. Ultimately, it's temporary. But one thing we can keep forever is what we put in heaven. It'll never go away. So, in this series, what we've said is we've said we want to give you good biblical teaching, we want to give you help, and we want to give you hope. So let me give you, here's the help this morning I've prepared. And, and we have a, a team that's been working on this for a while. 
we have created, uh, we'll put it on the screen, on our website, if you go to our next steps area, we've created a new portal that says manage well. The yellow arrow's touching it. And in that area, you will find an amazing amount of resources that we trust. I mean, tons and tons of things that are on demand, 24-7, access to you. You will, you will find um, online courses. Some of them are free. Some of them you have to pay for. We don't offer any of those, but we've linked to a ministry that does who we trust on debt, budgeting, investing. It's in English. It's in Spanish. We have it in both languages. You will see the first message we spoke in this series. You, uh, we give you links to budgeting apps that we trust, financial coaching, Christian debt counselors, financial calculators, podcast, uh, help on understanding inflation. What I want you to know is when we say we want something for you, not something from you, we mean it. We want to help. Here's a couple other ways we're doing it. Today at 2 o'clock, we have a life group called Managing Money God's Way. If you're a high school senior or up to about 30, like in that age range right there, we've targeted that group for this, for this group this fall. It starts today at 2 o'clock. We have 27 people who've signed up. If you want in and you're in that age group and you haven't signed up yet, uh, let me know today and I'll show you how to get there at 2 and you can start with the group. Um, second, if you look at this button right here that says register here, we're launching another group in January or February, uh, early next year, that's for everybody. You don't have to be 19 to 30. Anybody can come of any age. If you want us to notify you when that group forms, uh, all you have to do is push that register here button. You, you're not actually registering. You're not obligated to attend. You're not obligated to pay anything. Uh, push the button. Give us your information. As the group forms early next year, we'll send an email to you or reach out to you and remind you, hey, the group's about to form. You said you were interested. This will help you. So there's a trust me, the resources are amazing. Our team has done an amazing job to get it there for you because we want something for you, not something from you. Now, here's the hope, all right? I want to give you hope, and I'm really excited to give it to you. Jesus is the greatest giver in the history of the universe. No one else will ever give the way that God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit has given to me and you. He has given us His Word. He's given us the Holy Spirit as a comforter. He's given us prayer as a tool. He's given us a loving community in the church. He's given us spiritual mothers and fathers. He's given us mentors. He's given us teachers and pastors and leaders and counselors. He's given us the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He's given us the promise of the uh, faithful presence of God until the end of the world. He's given us unconditional love. He's given us eternity in heaven where He will wipe away every tear and He will wipe away every pain and there'll be no sickness and there'll be no loss and there'll be no disease ever again. He's given us life. He's given us provision. He's given us healing. He's given us a great cloud of witnesses that have come before us and surrounded us. He's given us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself. Man, he's a giver. And let me tell you this. He's not done. He's going to keep giving to you and giving to you and giving to you and giving to you until your heart's free. 
You don't have to earn it. You don't have to deserve it. He's just going to keep giving and giving and giving and giving and giving because that's the path to freedom because more than anything else on earth, God wants your heart free. Amen? Would you stand with me? Man, I believe that God wants to do a work of freedom in this place today. Whether it has to do with money or not. He wants to do a work of incredible freedom. And the song the worship team is singing right now is going to declare that. And what I want you to do, man, if you're online, turn the volume up. (laughs) And sing this song with us. And let the words drip into your heart that God is for you and He's not against you. And He has a plan for you and He wants to set you free. And I think He wants to do some of that work this morning. So Lord, we thank you today that you are a freedom giver. (laughs) We thank you today you've come to set our hearts free. You've come to pour your love out on us that our hearts might be severed away from all the other things that we could center our life in that would create bondage. So, Lord, today as we lift your voice up, I pray you would sink that thought.